So our message this evening on the 4th of April 2012 is called A Goat and All of the Above. A Goat and All of the Above. It's kind of an interesting thing how many times goats and lambs show up in the Bible. Y'all turn to Zechariah 13.1. A Goat and All of the Above. While you're turning there... I'd like to tell you that Israel has contributed more to, more to the world than any other country. That today they stand under threat from an Iranian madman who has promised to wipe them off the face of the earth. Today it's time to pick up the biblical mandate that we've been given through the prophet Isaiah and nearly every other biblical writer to pray for peace in Jerusalem. These are God's covenant people. Zechariah 13.1 tells us something. It says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. There is a day coming when Israel will experience salvation as a nation. It will be an amazing thing. You guys have all seen Blue Church before. Don't get fascinated with this. We have some sermon illustrations Amen. for you today. There's a day that was spoken of in Israel as a singular day in which Israel would begin to experience revival. Something amazing would begin to happen. What a crazy way to save the world. Right now we're approaching Resurrection Sunday. We're approaching the day that Christians celebrate Easter. Uh, a name which appears nowhere in the Bible. In feast times, this was called the week of Passover. Matthew, you can tie our little bubba to that right there. Now, I'm just going to confess this is a new friend of ours. His name is Bubba. <laughs> Bubba, uh, Bubba would not qualify as a Passover lamb. Bubba wouldn't qualify for a couple reasons. Somebody punched Bubba in the mouth, and Bubba's got a bum lip. <laughs> Bubba's also just a little bit sick. Apparently, if you buy a goat from an African grocer, it doesn't have a long life expectancy. <laughs> but Bubba's a decent little animal here. Oh, he's going to eat our tree. I don't like it either, Bubba. I'd like you to do something for me. While we're, while we're sitting here, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and tell me when you're there. The Bible is a book that is written from Eastern lands. Most of you are Western people. All of us have been greatly influenced by Western thought. This Eastern book has an Eastern worldview. It's different than the way that we view the world. We were taught to look at the world in a certain way, particularly Greek influence and our culture taught us linear logic. It taught us things like a plus B has to equal C. Their whole mystery has been removed. We've, we've reduced the world to scientific facts and figures until we find out those are wrong, and then we change those rules. But Eastern peoples, and most specifically Hebrews, are people who value action. They value function. More than anything, they look at the world through imagery rather than just abstract intellectual concepts. So when a, a Hebrew-speaking person wants to say, I'm resolute, he says, I will set my face like flint. When I say that, do you get a picture of a man who is intent on something? 
This was the when they described God and he was angry, they didn't simply say he was angry. In Hebrew it says his nostrils were flared. Have you ever read 2 Samuel 22 and seen that smoke rose from God's nostrils? This was to give an impression. An image was supposed to come to our mind. Something that would teach us about how God is. These images are there for a reason. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21, we see this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Paul, who understood both Jews and Greeks, he understood Judaism, but he also understood the rest of the world because he had lived as a diaspora Jew, summed up the two groups of people as Jews want to see a sign. They want to see something. They want to know something. Whereas Greeks are looking for wisdom. Does it make sense? In our lives, we've been taught simply to reason something out and say, does it make sense? But the Jewish way of life was, can it be proven through an action? Because of this, we talk about belief, but we look for no fruit. A Jew talks about walking with God rather than simply believing in God. And the two are completely inseparable in his mind. Because if you believe, then you walk with him. For this reason, whether we're speaking of a Greek word, pistis, or a, a Hebrew word, immuna, it might be better to think of biblical faith as trusting God wanted to see if in your actions you showed trust for Him. A third thing that I'd like to share with you before we move on is that the Hebrew concept of heaven is far different than ours in the West. We come from a Greek influence where heaven was off-world. Anything in this world was unclean, but some place that the Greeks called Elysium, somewhere else, was perfect. This is not the way the Jews view heaven. It's not the way the Bible describes heaven. God created the earth in how many days, church? He created it in six. And on the seventh, He rested. And He said, it was good. So the Jewish worldview is not that the world is bad, but that the world is good, and something has been introduced into it, evil, that needs to be purged from it. This is why the man was told in Genesis 1.28 to go forth and subdue the earth. There is something here, but I'm declaring the earth good and you are to drive it out. You are to take care of the problem. The Greeks looked at everything tangible and said it was bad. This led to terrible thoughts, like you can sin in your body because it's of this world, but stay pure in your spirit. That is ridiculous. And yet those thoughts still persist today and they just take different names, different doctrines. Because Jews viewed heaven as differently, when they looked at the atmosphere, they referred to it as a first heaven. Now the, the word is the same whether we're talking about the atmosphere or the place where God dwells. But they referred to it as the first heaven. The starry realm was a second heaven. And a third heaven was wherever God dwelt. And they saw it a little bit like rungs on a ladder. They saw it as spheres that were moving outward. And when Jews prayed... Jesus being the chief rabbi, they prayed things like, Lord, thy kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They prayed for what was perfectly recognized in the outer realms to move into this one where we live. This was their thought process. So the world was not bad, it simply needed to be purged. Heaven could come to earth rather than earthlings leave 
and go to heaven. How different is that than most preaching that we hear? With those things in mind, let's go to Hebrews 8.5 and see if we can make some sense with Bubba here today. Isn't he cute? Am I wrong? Is Bubba cute? He's going to stand for the entire service. Well, yes, sir, Bubba. Hey, y'all tell me. When you're in Hebrews 8.5, so we can move with our message. Eight, five. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses saw a pattern when he was on the mountain with God. The things that he built on the earth were built according to a pattern that he had seen in the heavenlies. God showed him things in the heavenlies, and so when he came down, he told them how many golden rings he wanted on things. He told them how many posts he wanted and in what places. He told them what metal things were to be made out of. He told them what color they were to be made out of because he had seen something that was beautiful, something that was a picture, something that perhaps Paul says... When he was caught to the third heaven, man is not permitted to speak of. Moses gave us a description. And they began to build on earth the things that they saw in heaven. Because the Hebrew concept was that heaven could come to earth. How distant sometimes do you feel from God, my friends? Sometimes we, we have these little warm sayings. We say, oh yeah, well, God's close to me in my heart. Really, do you feel that way though? Did you spend the majority of your day today feeling... Like you have the affection and the approval and the, the uh, empowerment of your God. See, man is not born with that feeling. We're not born feeling right with the Lord. And there's a reason. We come from a diseased stock of humanity. Uh, a group of people that just perpetually, without ever ceasing, reject God's rule when it disagrees with our own. Have you ever had somebody that does whatever you ask them to do as long as it's what they wanted to do? That's not obedience, friends. Obedience is when he tells us to do something that we don't want to do. And we have to follow through with it. If you had to take Bubba into your house tonight, do you think he'd take very long before your kids would get attached to him? Probably not. I hadn't seen Bubba for a couple minutes and I named him. Why do we name things? It's a sign of affection, you know. It's because you begin to care. It's interesting. We're going to come back to Bubba. What we saw on the earth was a shadow, a copy. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. You're going to turn to a lot of places in your Bible tonight. That's because this is God's instructions to mankind. It tells His story, if you will. It paints His picture. You're doing a good job, but just hang out, man. In Leviticus 23, let us pick up with these couple verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feast, the appointed feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. 
This word sacred assembly in Hebrew is mikra. To say sacred assembly is to say mikra. This is the only way that it could be said in Hebrew. And when you say it in Hebrew, a mikra is of course a sacred assembly. Of course, if you go to Israel today, and let's just say that uh, Spence and Caitlin are about to get married. What do you do the day before you get married, the evening before? You have a rehearsal dinner. Do you know what that's called? In Israel, it's called a, a mikra. It is a sacred assembly. It's a group of people getting together to practice wedding. But in its essence, it is a rehearsal for something. The rehearsal dinner is not the wedding day. It looks like the wedding day. It forecasts the wedding day. It tells you what's going to happen on the wedding day. But it's not the wedding day, is it? Better not be, right? You find a different pastor to do your wedding. It looks very much like it. In fact, the reason that you go to the rehearsal dinner is so that you will know what to do on the wedding day, isn't it? We stand this way. We pose this way. How all of those things might... Who, who in here got married this year? Did we have to practice? Yes. We did. In fact, we all we had some stubborn people. We had to practice more than once, didn't we? We had to do two walkthroughs, right? Actually, they were pretty good. This is the word mikra. So when we see sacred assembly in Leviticus 23, understand seven times a year God wanted His people to get together, and it was a sacred day, a holy day, but it was in its very essence a rehearsal for something that they knew would be bigger. They were waiting for something. They were waiting for the kingdom of God to become the dwelling of men. And the feasts were rehearsals for this. Yeah, that's worth an amen, David. I'd like to talk to you about the months of their year for a moment. How many months are in our year? Twelve. They have twelve and sometimes thirteen. In a lunar calendar, we have to add a month every so often to uh, balance it out because the seasons move if you don't do this. They're not in the same time of year every time. In a solar calendar, we also have a method for balancing it out, making small adjustments. We add a day to February every now and then. This year, February had 29 days instead of 28 days. But seven months of the year, the first seven months of the year, were the Jewish feasts that in their very essence are rehearsals for something. It was an assembly where they got together, but they knew that they were rehearsing for something bigger. The first month of the year was not originally the first month. How amazing is this? They started in the middle of their year, but because something happened that was a game changer, something happened that would change for all time, the way that they viewed the world, they said this month was now our first month. Can you imagine that we're in June? Right? Let's just say we're in June, and all of a sudden we say, you know, we had such a good month. Let's pretend it's January. This will be month number one. From here on out, the sixth month has become the first month. That'd be a little confusing, right? But if you did it for 1,600 years, you wouldn't even remember what month your year used to start in, would you? What you would remember is that there was an amazing change, a monumental event, a kind of born-again experience. See, in the month of Nisan... They were let out of Egypt. They were rescued from their bondage to slavery. It came through the blood of a lamb or a goat. A little guy just like this, something innocent, whose blood was shed and their houses were covered in it. And because they wanted to mark the day that they came out of slavery into a new life, a new freedom, a new existence, that month for them became the first month of their year and the first feast of their year. 
The first thing that they were going to commemorate. The very first thing that they were going to rehearse for all generations to come was a Passover. It moved from there to an unleavened bread. Now in the Passover they were covered by the blood of the Lamb in their house and they escaped slavery and they escaped Egypt. You can read about this in Exodus 12. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happened at the same time as Passover, the killing of the Passover lamb was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because this happened, oh, he's scared. Because this happened, they began to move into a new phase. As soon as the lamb was killed, the goat was killed, the father in the house would take a menorah. The menorah always stood for God's Spirit. It is a sevenfold candelabra, something that Moses saw in the heavenlies and built on the earth. One source yet expressed in seven ways, a many-folded sided, a many-sided candelabra. And he would search the house. The mother would have hidden little bits of leaven all over the house, little bits of yeast, something small, but if you didn't take care of it, it grew into a much bigger problem. A little yeast would work through a whole bunch of dough. They would go all the way through the house looking for anything. This, this so affected the world that we have the term spring cleaning because Jews have done this since the Exodus. They would search the entire house on their hands and knees with the light that symbolized the Spirit of God. In any leaven that they found, they would gather into a bag and they would burn it. This was teaching God's people that when you were covered in the blood of the Lamb, you went through your house. You removed sin from your house. You did, no matter how small, no matter what corner it was in, God's light would shine on it, and you would do whatever it took to get rid of it. There was a feast three days after, or the nearest Sabbath after, Passover and unleavened bread. It was the feast of first fruits. This is when people who had been let free from slavery, who were covered in a redemptive work of God, who are now freeing their life of the bondages of sin, now they wanted to show God something. They wanted to show Him that the very best of what they had, they wanted to offer to Him. So they went out into their fields. They grabbed the choicest piece of their field. They put a scarlet ribbon around it. Perhaps a reminder of the condition that they were in, bound by sin. They put a scarlet ribbon around it and they brought it and they waved it at the temple as an offering. They did this on the nearest Sabbath, which was three days in most cases, after Passover and unleavened bread. We then moved to the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, which is called Shavuot in Hebrew, is in the third month of the year. Some 50 days after Passover. I'm sorry, 50 days after first fruits. This was the time when all of their harvest came in. They were gathering all of their harvest as a community, as a group. But they knew that they were rehearsing for something else. They knew that it spoke a deeper message. They knew that God was using them to display something to the world. After this third month, we had a long break. There were no more feasts until the last month of the year. But in the last month, of their religious calendar, the seventh month of their year, just like seven days in a week, something would happen. Rosh Hashanah would be an announcement by a trumpet. 
It would say that the long time period with no interaction with the feast was over. It would say that the stillness of the month of Tammuz and Av and Ul was over. Rosh Hashanah would announce something was happening. Redemption for the nation is drawing near. It involved blowing trumpets of ram's horns that look just like that. Where do you get a ram's horn, friends? This little guy's starting to grow his. That's not much of a chauffeur one there yet, is there? <laughs> Everything that would be used in God's service would involve something. It involved the sacrifice of something innocent. If you had to get a ram's horn off of this guy, how long would you have to take care of it? Long time. Could you love something that you had to care? Anybody in here got a dog? Yeah. Your dog doesn't produce anything worthwhile. What he produces, you want to be in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> but what if you waited years and years and years for something to grow on your dog, but the only way to get it off your dog was to kill it? How would you feel about that? Would that be difficult for you to do? Anybody in here want to want to butcher their dog? I, 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 this couple up here has a 90-pound German Shepherd <coughs> that lays on his back in Caitlin's lap like a baby. He talks to her. She rubs his belly, and he grumbles. I can't even imagine that kind of thought. Do you really think that no Israelites got attached to their animals? My friend Raja in India, I knew that he didn't like beef, so when he visited me, I served chicken every day. It escaped my notice that he woke up before we did every day when we were in India. And he went out and he took care of his chickens because he loves them. I wondered why he didn't finish his meals. I thought it was just bad cooking. He didn't like chicken. After Rosh Hashanah came something. Rosh Hashanah was an announcement to the world. The announcement was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is on the way. You can read about these in Leviticus 23. You can read about these several places in the Bible. The Day of Atonement was a day like none other. I began to read to you a moment ago out of Zechariah. It was a day when the entire nation that was loaded with guilt, loaded with sin, could do something about their sin. After, after Yom Kippur came the Feast of Tabernacles. The people now free of their sin, free of of their temporary nomadic existence, now in something permanent with God, wanted to celebrate. So they built lean-tos out for the whole world to see, little tents. And they began to celebrate the time when they used to have to sojourn in tents because now they had come into a permanent inheritance. With eyes to see, it's not hard to imagine that there would be a day when we will have set these bodies aside, these tents of flesh, and we might rejoice with the people of God that we no longer die that we no longer cry, that we no longer experience the hardships of this difficult world. Anybody been to a funeral this year? Yeah, I've been to some difficult ones. You long for something like this. The feast in Israel were a roadmap to the plan of God. They were teaching us, rehearsing for us what was coming, what has come and what is still to come. This evening... We all approach something that our culture calls Easter. I don't want to get into the history or the etymology of the word Easter, but it's not biblical. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It had everything to do with a King James translator that didn't know how to translate a word. The biblical feast was Passover. 
And how fitting that the Bible works so hard to make sure you understand that the crucifixion happens on Passover. It's because there was supposed to be an association between the crucifixion and a goat or a lamb. All Israel was waiting for was not just Passover, they were waiting for the Day of Atonement. What would our nation's Day of Atonement look like, friends? What would that look like? What kind of sin would we repent from as a nation? We're such individuals, we don't think like this. We think about me and mine. But we don't think about as a nation. How many babies have we killed this year? Has there ever been a nation? I mean, did the Nazis kill as many babies as this country is murdering in a year? What would we have to atone for? We put on our money and God we trust. Is that not blasphemous? The only way that that's true is, is if the money is the God that we're trusting in. Do we have things to, to, to repent from as a nation? Israel was no different. I mean, they may not have gone as far into some of the wicked depravity that we have, but they were no different. Can you imagine knowing a month is coming in the distance? It will be announced by a trumpet. It's coming when we don't have to carry sin anymore. You, anybody have a dispute with a relative in here? One that's gone on, I mean, year after year, makes Thanksgiving lots of fun, right? Makes Christmas awkward. You don't know what to do. And it just perpetually goes on and on. What if every year there was a time... When every member of this nation got right with every other member of the nation, would you look forward to a day like that? How would you feel when it was over? You know, the ten days prior to the blowing of the trumpet in Rosh Hashanah are called the days of awe. The whole nation went into introspection. They began to pray for ten days, Lord, show me. Show me what I need to get rid of. Show me how to help my brothers get rid of it. We want to be right with you. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about the Day of Atonement and I'm going to talk to you about Passover because they both involve goats or lambs. Why don't you turn to Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. What an amazing statement that is. You remember why they died? Aaron's two sons died because they offered unauthorized fire, strange fire. God had a prescribed way to come near to him. And they ignored it. They did what they thought were best. So God struck them dead. Now we're going to get instructions again on how to come near to God. Do you think they paid attention? Come on now, you're third in line. You step up with the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? You're third in line, and number one doesn't have the right form. Bam! Dead right there. Number two's trembling. You know, they need $17.50 for the license renewal, and they only brought $16.50. Bam! Dead! Would you be thinking about getting your life right, getting this right? Would you be going over the regulations for the Department of Motor Vehicles? Aaron's two sons have died. <laughs> And they died because they were careless in their approach to God as if He were a common thing. Come on now, if tomorrow you find out you were going to dinner with this president or some past president if you prefer. Would you dress like you dress now? Yeah. 
Come on, girls, you might go get your hair did, right? Why? Because he's an important man. There's a protocol when we meet with important people. In fact, there's a protocol when you meet with people that aren't important. We generally have some rules in our society. They came to us from the Bible. And if you're going to meet with God, there was a way to do it. Get you some Bubba, that's great, man. Bubba was just weaned. So he'd learn to eat some solid food. He's got a little mouth problem. So, see him licking that up? Isn't it cute? He'll talk to you if you talk to him. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now you could read that and you could just hear that it's possible to die. When I read it, I hear something else. What else is possible? Is it possible just to get struck dead? What else is possible? What is the subject of the sinner? What is of, of the sentence? What is God trying to draw out? Is he trying to kill Aaron? What's he trying to teach him to do? To obey him for what purpose, Dustin? To save him. To be with him. What a concept. The God of heaven wants to meet with a human being. Come on, how did you start your day? Hello? How did you start your day? Because Aaron's going to have a day where he goes in and he speaks with God. And God speaks with him. God dwelt in the cloud above the atonement cover, it says. Come on, friends. In all of human history, what God's required of people were terrible things. But this God wants to meet with His people. The Day of Atonement, first and foremost, is about something of the heavens coming to meet with something on the earth. By the way, how did you get here? When Rick got here, not tonight, but when he got here, he's in the image of God. God made Rick to look like him as He made Joel to look like him. How did the first human being get here? Something from the heavens reached down and touched something from the earth and blew into it. Amen. You are a divine union between the heavenly and the earthly. You are the medium by which the living God speaks to the rest of mankind. Aaron is a representative, not just for Israel, but for all mankind. I want to meet with you. Amen. And here's how it must be done. Come on now. One man, one special man, could go and meet with God once a year to give all men hope that they could be reconciled to God. Man, there's nothing worse than despair. It said that in the concentration camps, they could give people the worst task, move this pile of rocks. And that didn't discourage them to the point of death. But when they got it to the other side, and they said, now move them back, and the people realized it was just work, there was no purpose in it. They began to die of heartache. They began to die of a purposeless existence. To be separated from God is to be purposeless. What do you do? You gather all the toys you can. You gather all the pleasures that you can. And then you die of cancer in some hospital somewhere. Yeah, that's a purposeless 
existence. But the thought that God would reach down into humanity and speak something to a human being was to give all mankind hope. They rehearsed this year after year. He says, I appear in the cloud over the atonement covenant. I don't want to teach on this too much tonight. But for years, Christian theologians have said something that is grossly inaccurate, absolutely wrong. They said that the Ark of the Covenant contained three things. They said that it contained the jar of manna, the staff that budded, uh, Aaron's staff that budded, and the broken law of God, the pieces of the Ten Commandments. This is not true. It is absolutely false. Deuteronomy 10.5 says what is in there. And the first two were right. But the law that is in there is whole tablets, complete tablets. The second ones that were given. And there's a reason for this. Christian theologians have said that God looked upon the broken law that is sin and that blood covered the sin and, and that this is a, a redemptive miracle. And I say hogwash. He looked at His perfect law, not His broken law, His complete law, and said the only thing that it lacks is my sacrifice and they will be made whole. They didn't carry around a testimony of your sin. They didn't carry around a testimony that said man has broken God's law. They carried around a testimony that said there is a right way to live and God will help you do it. Amen. To the point that He'll give His own Son for you. Amen. This is the testimony of God. Not a, a broken law. You already knew that. You knew that the first time that you realized you were a sinner and a liar and a thief and a terrible person. And if you haven't realized that yet... Keep coming to church. I'll teach you. We have the worst things bound up inside of us. I've got the prettiest kids. My kids are prettier than all of yours. And from my pretty kids, as soon as they're old enough to speak, they lie. You know? Did you do it? He did it. You know? He wasn't in the house. Uh, you did it. <laughs> if I gave him one ice cream someday... They want it too. You know why? Because they're kids. Folly is bound up in their heart. You know what the difference between the kids and the adults are? The kids can still be corrected. This is the state of humanity. Separated from God, but God is saying there, there is hope. There is a possibility here. Look at the third verse with me. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the turban. These are the sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Before we read that next verse, I just got to tell you that this just doesn't do it for me like it does in the first century. I mean... When we start talking about linen underwear, that gets a little weird, doesn't it? When we start talking about sacred garments of any kind, you know, that, that just feels a little strange to us. But they were not us. Understand this is the first time in human history that something like this has happened. And God's saying, you want to approach me? There's a special way I want you to do it. Number one, you need to bathe. <laughs> you stink. Your mind thinks, your soul drinks, and your flesh stinks. Something's wrong. You can be reborn in your inner man. But you need to replace your flesh. So go wash it. 
You do bad things, man. Go take a bath. And then clothe yourself with something. Something that is heavenly. Put something on that is different than the way you normally walk around. And God described exactly what he wanted him to put on. Look at the fifth verse. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. Two male goats for a sin offering. We have two goats that we're speaking of, but only one offering. The man had to deal with his own sin. The man had to put on sacred garments. He had to show up with two goats as a single offering. This description of events surrounding God's coming to dwell with His people in a special way was meant to impact all of our sensory perception. It was meant to paint a picture saying that God wants to dwell with you. Why did I drag a goat in here today? Because it's better to see a goat than it is just to read about a goat, right? <coughs> so God could have dropped a scroll from the sky. He could have simply said, This is my word. Wait, He did. But He didn't stop there. He also had people acting out things that were in His Word over and over and over before all of the nations so that everyone could see something. He wanted to make an impact on you. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, wouldn't it just be amazing if we had a chance to read and see what somebody's first impression was when they saw this? Wouldn't that be nice? What would happen if you got to go back to the very first Day of Atonement in history? If you got to see it and then write about what you felt, what you saw it? You would have seen things like the brazen altar. This would be the first thing that you would encounter on your approach to God. The brazen altar would quite simply say, you're under judgment. You're under judgment. Something has to die if you want to come close to me. An animal just like this one would be killed. His blood would be thrown in your face. You know where you would go next? You'd go to a, a wash basin. And the bottle, uh, bottom of it was polished. So Ray, you'd have, you'd have Bubba's blood on your face. You'd walk over to a wash basin and you would look into it. And you would see a reflection. You would see your guilt. He had to die because you did something wrong. Does that feel good? Anybody here want to come kill Bubba because you did something wrong? But where were you standing? You were standing at a wash basin. God was saying, there is a way to do something about this. We can wash this off. You just have to listen to me. So they would wash in the lake. This is what James is speaking of when he says, you're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. He's saying, you don't remember where you've come from, friends. You would then approach a holy place. And in the holy place, you would see holy things. The first thing that you would come to in the holy place would be showbread. This would be fresh cooked bread. Come on now, how do you feel when you smell fresh cooked bread? <laughs> Making me hungry right now. You know, today Ryan's has somewhat dropped in its popularity, but in the day you'd go to Ryan's after church and they had those hot rolls. They had butter with honey in it. They called it a steakhouse and nobody went there for the steak. You went there for the rolls. 
This is because God wanted you to know that having sacrificed, having washed, now as you approached Him, He was about to fill you in a way that bread filled you. But it'd be even better, it'd be on a spiritual level. In the very same room would be candelabras, menorahs, that would light your path. There, this was saying, I'll illuminate every area of your life to you. In the very same room, in addition to the candelabra, in addition to the showbread, you would smell fragrant incense that was going up before God. <coughs> this was all meant to impact you. It was saying, I want to meet with you, but you can't come. Only one special person came. Then you would get to a barrier. It would be a curtain. The curtain grew in thickness every year, just like our separation from God grows when we leave it undealt with. On the other side of the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwelt above it. And only one man, one time a year, could go in there. You know, we happen to have uh, a letter from a man who saw this. It was translated in 1913 at Oxford. Listen to this. These are called the Letters of Aristius. We were greatly astonished when we saw Eleazar engaged in the ministration at the mode of his dress and the majesty of his appearance, which was revealed in the robe which he wore and the precious stones upon his person. They were golden bells upon his garment, which reached down to his feet, giving forth a peculiar kind of melody. And on both sides of them were pomegranates with variegated flowers of a wonderful hue. Now, we don't write like this anymore. We don't describe things like this anymore. We have 3D movies now. We don't have to do this, but roll this back into its time. What if we're a thousand years before Jesus and we're watching? And we're describing with every intricate detail the pattern of something that was modeled after the heavens. Would you feel blessed to get to see it? Yes. I mean, people used to travel all over the world to see something in a museum that a famous artist made. Now these things Moses and the Israelites made after seeing into the heavens. How special would you feel that you were there and got to see it? He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty, woven in the most beautiful of colors. On his breast he wore the oracle of God, as it was called, on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset, fastened together with gold, containing the names of the leaders of the tribes according to their original order, one flashing forth in an indescribable way with its own particular color. You know, this is an amazing thing. God had described these linen garments that Aaron would wear. He told them how to make them. And he said, on the breastpiece, I want you to put a stone. And he gave a kind for each tribe, a special kind. And he said, I want you to inscribe upon them the names of the tribes of Israel. And there were 12 tribes, so there were 12 stones with 12 names. All over the world, people have identified 12 constellations. It's almost like when the Hebrews said there's a first heaven that is the atmosphere and a second heaven that is the story realm and God is somewhere beyond that, surrounded by the 12 constellations. We would now have a human being, a man, who is wearing symbols of that other heavenly place. Did you know that in almost every language one of those constellations has a name like Virgo? In the original languages it almost always means virgin. 
Even the stars tell a story. How did the Magi find Jesus? I suspect that ancient man, before the wickedness of astrology, could look up and know exactly where they were on the planet simply by looking at the stars. And perhaps it told a message about God because men see pictures in those stars. Maybe astrology is simply a corrupted form of something God intended to communicate a message to us. Listen to how Josephus wrote about it. Josephus was writing in the first century during the time of Christ. He said, and as for those twelve stones, whether we understand them by the months or we understand them like the number of the signs of that circle which the Greeks called the zodiac, we shall not be mistaken in their meanings. This meant to the Israelite people, God dwells in twelve groupings of stars, but how many tribes of Israel were there? And God told them where He wanted them to camp. He told them what names He wanted written upon their tribal standards. The God who dwells there among those twelve starry hosts is going to dwell with you on the earth. And now a man who is wearing a breastpiece that symbolizes that union between the divine and the earthly is standing in front of you. And you could only see it once a year. Would you feel privileged to have met the man? Let's go on with the letter of Aristius. On his head he wore a tiara. <laughs> That's comical to us. Who wears tiaras today? Princesses. But it was meant to be regal, beautiful, heavenly. As it is called, it was upon this an immutable turban, the royal diadem full of glory with the name of God inscribed in letters on a gold plate. Having been judged worthy to wear these emblems in the ministrations, their appearance created such awe and confusion of mind as to make one feel that they had come into the presence of a man who belongs to a different world. I am convinced that anyone who takes part in the spectacle which I have described will be filled with astonishment and indescribable wonder and will be profoundly affected in his mind and thought of the sanctity with, with which is attached to each one of these items in their service. This is an ancient man's account of having seen it. And he said, it felt to me like somebody stepped from that world into this one. It profoundly affected my mind and my thoughts. God wanted this mikra, this festival repeated. Because he wanted to impact as many minds and as many thoughts as he could. He wanted to paint a picture that would never be forgotten. This is what is wrong with changing the names of these feasts. This is what is wrong with remaking it in an American image where we have a, a, a little rabbit that is running around leaving eggs everywhere. This is what is wrong is it doesn't impact the mind. It doesn't move the spirit the way that God intended it to. I'm with one of the elders in this church that said let's celebrate Easter by killing the rabbit and eating him. I'm only saying that God intended for us to understand something that we are we are missing. That we are missing. Maybe we could we could pick back up in Leviticus. Would that be okay? Yeah. But it's gonna be alright, man. I don't know if you're gonna like the end of the message though. <laughs> Let's pick up in Leviticus 16. How about verse 6? Are you all there? Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. 
Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And does anybody have a different translation in here today? What you got, Steve? Azazel. Azazel. This is an interesting thing. An Az in Hebrew is either a goat or a lamb. There is no distinction when they're little. You have to watch them grow to know what they are. An Az in Hebrew is a goat. But if you want to leave somewhere, if, if you decide you've had enough of my preaching tonight, Brandy, and you get up and you run out, we say she Azel. She went away. She took it away. She took herself away. So an Azazel is a goat that takes away something. This is where we get the English word scapegoat. Uh, some translations say the goat of removal, the goat that takes away. You would have two goats and you would cast a stone. One was going to take something away. Cast lots, rather. And Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. So which would you like to be? Which would you like Bubba to be? Do you, when we cast lots, do we want him to be the sin offering? Or do we want him to be the Azazel? Because the sin offering we're going to kill right away. Which do you want him to be? Hold on. Heathen. Which would you like him to be? Hmm? You want a sin offering? Would you like to do that? Anybody in here just jumping up and down to do that? Why? It's a big knife in it, Abby. It's a little goat. Why? He's living. See how insulated we are from these things? We eat cabrito every time we go to Mexico. What's the difference? Yes. To go just like that. Because we buy our meat and cellophane. We don't have to kill anything anymore. We never see death anymore. But the Israelites rehearsed this. They rehearsed it to make an impact. Because if you had to kill that little animal, it'd make an impression on you, wouldn't it? It really would. I'm going to leave this here so y'all can think about that for a moment. It would cast lots. One goat would get killed immediately. But the goat chosen by Lot is the scapegoat. The Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness. We have two goats but one offering. We have the Azazel, which is a Hebraic compound word, the goat that takes away. One goat is going to be poured out. <laughs> The other goat is going to be set free. Look at verse 20 for me. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. My God, how long would that have taken? And put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of an, a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it. What an interesting thing. They would take a scarlet cord, something very much like this one. And the man who was dressed like heaven, the one special man that could go into the presence of God will have come out of the presence of God. And he walks over. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't want this either, Bubba. Oh, 
He's trying to get loose. Help me, Ray. <laughs> Come on, Bubba. Do you run from sin like Bubba does? Or do you run to it? They would take something like this and they would put it on his head with both hands and press it into his head. And you know what we'd be speaking over Bubba right now? Whatever you did. So what would be there? This is making Bubba sick. What would be there? Hmm? Would there be adultery there? Would there be internet pornography there? Would there be hatred of someone there? Because he's speaking your sin over this little goat. And what's his job now? His job now is to bear your sin. Friends, sin always leaves a mark. Can y'all see Bubba's head? You can pin to that water thing. They took this cord then, this little scarlet cord, and they went and nailed it to the temple door. When you looked at that cord, you knew that it was stained with your sin. You know, biblical dyes are not easy to get. Who else is stained with this sin? It's all over his head, isn't it? It's all over Bubba's head. Why? Well, because Bubba's a goat. Whose sin is on his head? Yours is. They did something in Israel to get this, this red paint. It was a special kind of worm. The worm was called a tola worm. You had to grind it. When you ground the tola worm, something red and nasty came out. You ground enough tola worms together, and it got redder and redder and redder. I want to read to you an ancient Jewish writing about that. <coughs> says, how do we know that the crimson-colored strap that is tied to the head of the goat and sent away on the Azazel? Because it is said, if your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. By a miracle, the crimson-colored strap turned white, thus showing the people that they were forgiven of their sins. Isaiah 1.18 said, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, Though they be as crimson, it goes on to say you can be made whole again. Those worms, the Tola worms, they showed up several places in the Bible to get the red dye of sin. Deuteronomy 28, 39 says, Hey man, if you continue to sin, when you plant crops, I'm going to send the Tola worm and he's going to come eat them. This was symbolic. Sin will eat up all of your goodness. It will eat up all of your crops. You remember Jesus, what he said hell would be like? A place where what never dies? The total worm never dies. Of course, Isaiah 14, this is what people say is uh, talking about Satan. 
really the king of Tyre, but he's called Lucifer, son of the morning, and how he's fallen. Y'all heard this scripture? The 11th verse says, you are covered with worms, and people mock you. You know what he's covered with? Told the worms. They were always sin. How about our buddy Jonah? He ran from God, and he got swallowed by a great fish. I imagine it wasn't nice in the belly of that fish, was it? Look, my head's balding. What do you think it'd be like if we put some way old stomach juice on it? So I saw a vine grow up overnight. And I sat under it like Jonah did. But in the fourth chapter and seventh verse, something was appointed to eat his shade. A tola worm. See, sin is stealing from us. It is eating that which would cover us. That which would shade us. Sin is destroying our lives. And God said, I want to meet with you. But we have to do something about your sin. So little Bubba is covered in my sin and yours right now. Now a man appointed for the task is supposed to do something. He's supposed to lead him outside the camp. How good would you feel when that goat was gone? Your sin's gone. It's gone. Like, would you start to kind of do the little happy dance? What if the guy didn't do a good job? And the goat was gone, but now he's back. <laughs> Nobody wanted that goat to come back. So although God said it would live, they usually took it somewhere outside the camp. Where nobody was around. And it had a bad fall. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Now, who wants to be associated with the goat that is covered in sin? The Jew wanted to. So you know what they did? They said, look, we, far be it from us to transgress our law. Michael, you're not a Jew, are you? Michael, would you take this goat out there and kill him for me? Because I don't want to break the law. They appointed a Gentile to do it. Now turn with me to the book of John. going to be in John 19th chapter in first verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. When man sinned in Genesis, what did the ground produce for him? Thorns. When they put those inch and a half thorns on Jesus' head, I think it felt good. Did it just comb his hair? But it says they put them on his head. How do you think they put them on his head? How do you get something like that to stick? They drove it into his scalp. What color is your blood, friends? He was covered in sin. Just like Bubba was covered in sin. It was all over his head. He was more innocent than Bubba was. Jesus' sin didn't exist. Our sin was on his head. I need to make a jump for a moment because the week that this was happening was not the day of atonement. It was Passover. 
in the first chapter of John. In the 29th verse, Jesus is announced. You know how He was announced? Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. What a way to announce the Messiah. The Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. But I bet nobody envisions Him taking it away like this. John 18, 39 goes through great length to say that while Jesus is standing before Pilate, it is the Passover. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, while Jesus was being crucified, you know what they were doing, friends? You could hear the cry of lambs because people took knives just like this one and cut their throats to commemorate the day that they were slaves. But God set them free through the blood of something innocent. And they covered the doorposts of their house. That's what was going on while Jesus was having a crown of thorns twisted into his head. He wore that crown just like he does. So which is it? Is he the Passover lamb or is he the Azazel, the goat that takes away? Well, he's all of the above. He's also the sin offering who loses his life. You know that Corinthians 5, 7th verse, Paul calls Jesus the Passover lamb. You know what you did, by the way, in Israel the week of Passover? See, this is what's wrong. When we have a Friday crucifixion, which is stupid, by the way. Why is it stupid? Let me just tell you why it's stupid. Matthew 12, 40. It says, as Jonah was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. The Lord was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Well, let's talk about this. The Gospel of John in the 20th chapter says that early on the first day of the week, before the sun had risen, first day of the week before the sun had risen, when they got to the tomb, Jesus was not there. So if he was killed on Friday evening, at 3 o'clock he breathed out his last and cried out, and he died on a Friday evening, and Sunday morning he was not in the grave. Friday night to Saturday night is how many nights and days? One. Saturday to Sunday morning? Does Jesus tell the truth, friends? Yes. That he was not killed on a Friday. Oh. What difference does this make? It makes a difference because the feast schedule was meant to teach us something. John 19.31 says that it was the day of preparation for the next day was a special Sabbath. See, people who were ignorant of God's Word but ran the whole world assumed that if there was a Sabbath that week, Sabbath was always Saturday, but they didn't know the feast schedule. A Sabbath is any holy day, any mikra that God has set, and there is more than one that week. Let's just do three days and three nights. If he was killed on a Wednesday night in the evening, Wednesday night to Thursday night is one. Thursday night to Friday night is two. Friday night to Saturday night is three, and when they got there before light on Sunday morning, he was not there. Let's just suppose then that he was killed on a Wednesday. What day of the month were the... The Passover lamb's killed on. It was the 14th of Nisan. What did you do with the Passover lamb? Well, on the 10th of Nisan, which would have been, if this was a Wednesday, would have been the previous Saturday, 
You bring him into your house. Do you know where Jesus was on the 10th of Nisan? He was standing in the temple saying in John 8, 46, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He was being examined. The gospel's very close. He stayed that night in Bethany, and he stayed in Bethany that entire week. You know why? He was not more than a Sabbath day's walk from the temple. He couldn't break the Sabbath, or he would have been guilty. So, well, what difference does all of that make? It makes every bit of difference, because he was being killed at the same time as the Passover lamb. He was both the Azazel that is the goat that takes away sin of the Day of Atonement. He would atone for the nation. And he would atone like the Passover lamb for an individual family. He was both. Let's read back in John, though. <laughs> How about verse 13? When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat, a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic, or the language of the Jews, is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. It is the day of Passover, but it is a day of preparation for Passover week. The week of Passover is the week with unleavened bread and all of the other events. I want you to hear this, though. Who is Jesus standing in front of? Pilate. Pilate was a man appointed for a specific task. You know what his task was? To control the Jews. Do you know who had the high priest garments this year? See, just to snub the Jews. Just to show them they were not boss. Rome built a fortress on the side of the temple. It was called Diana. And on the, the female virginal goddess of war, uh, yeah, go figure. Uh, the Greeks called her Artemis. She was worshipped in Ephesus, which incidentally is the place where Mary was declared to be the mother of God by, uh, well, you know who. On the side of the temple to Diana, or the fortress of Diana, there was a Praetorian building. And in it, they kept the garments of the high priest. You know who had control of them? Did Jesus carry his own cross? No, when he was led outside the city, they appointed someone to lead him outside the city, didn't they? Why don't you read that 14th verse? What's it say? Somebody read it out loud. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. Keep going. They shouted, take him away. What did they shout? Take him away. The Jewish people, did they speak Greek? They speak English? No. They speak Norwegian? No. They speak Spanish? What do they speak? Hebrew. And in Hebrew, how do you say, take away? Azazel. Without even knowing it, they were proclaiming him their goat that takes away sin. At the very moment that Passover lambs were being killed. I'm merging two feasts. I realize this. This is because he is both. All of the above. You know... During the movie Passion of the Christ, there was a great debate. Who is culpable? I can't say it. Who's responsible for killing Jesus? The Passover lamb was killed by Israel for Israel every year. 
the atonement. The Azazel was by Israel, for Israel. But the Gentiles were always involved. They were appointed for that task. Who's guilty? All of the above. Who is not guilty? But who is the redemption meant for? It was meant for Israel as an example for us. This is why we worship the Jewish king. Y'all remember our scarlet cord? The Jews said that that cord turned white. They nailed it to the temple door and it turned white every year. Their temple was destroyed in AD 70. And reflecting on the years before the temple was destroyed, there's a particular tractate by unbelieving Jews. Men who never received Messiah who wrote about the years when the temple was destroyed. And it says, Our rabbis taught that during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, what year was the temple destroyed in? 70. And 40 years before that would have been what year? 30. So somewhere around 30 AD. Our rabbis taught that the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson-colored strap become white anymore. Why, friends, do you think that for 1,600 years the crimson-colored strap turned white, showing the whole nation that it was purified? And then this year, in the year 30 or thereabouts A.D., it stopped. Could it be because there are Azazel that they had been Rehearsing for that time? Could it be that the Passover that originally occurred in Egypt was now occurring again all over the world? People would be let out of bondage. Come on now. If you were there, if you said the words, if that crown of thorns was pushed in his head, and you know each thorn was one of your sins, would it impact your senses? Okay, who wants to do this thing? Natalie, you? No? Why not? We have a tarp, we have a goat. Who wants to do it? Rachel, you? Chris, you? You want to kill the goat? Why does nobody want to kill the goat? I'll all scare you, speak. Gabe, you come do it. Come on. Come kill the goat. What's wrong then? Doesn't something cry in you? It's not fair. We're not talking about a goat, friends. We're talking about a human being. And it's not fair. He did that for you. The Father the slaughter of his son for you. Amen. We can't bring ourselves to kill one little misfigured goat. He doesn't even qualify for the Passover. His lip disqualifies him. We can't bring ourselves to kill him. How dare us take lightly the blood of Jesus? How dare us? How dare us call ourselves Christians if we're not going to live like Christians? We really should butcher this goat and throw us blood all over all of us. 
wouldn't be very civilized, but it would be a picture to remember, huh? Jesus' own mother stood at the cross and watched them stab him in the side and watched blood and water come out. The Apostle John stood and watched as a man who had healed others was now being mocked. You ever have the thought if you had been there? I'd just been there. Even different. Let me tell you how wrong you are. Every time you sin, you're testifying that you would have taken part in what they did. Every time. Every time. That cord put turning white for the nation because God loved the nation and he wanted to redirect them. So he tore down their temple. <laughs> he changed the whole religious order, not because he doesn't love the nation of Israel, but because he does. None of those things are wrong. It's not wrong to do the feast. It's probably wrong not to, if we're honest. We should know about these things. Why do we know more about Christmas, which does not appear in the Bible, than we do about Purim, which does appear in the Bible? Why do we know more about Easter than we know about Passover? Friends, it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to wake up. It was not a little goat like this one that died. It was a human being. Who saw Passion of the Christ? So hard to watch. I felt like I just watched Matthew torn limb from limb. Because I love Jesus. Let's not mock the sin that cost him his life by acting like it's no big deal. Friends, a communion meal is not cracker. It's not wine or grape juice or whatever your conscience dictates you do. It's not that. It's a, it's, it's a holding of that knife. It is saying, I understand what you did. But the knife is no longer going to be pointed just at him. You're saying, I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. And if it costs me my life, I will walk with you. That's what you're saying. When you eat this, you don't just proclaim his death. You proclaim your death in him. Amen. To be baptized into his name means to be immersed into all that he did. And we've made it a ridiculous religious ritual where some strange guy in a gown throws water at you. These things mock Jesus. If we can't kill this little goat, then our arm never would have worked salvation for us. So God did. He is the special man who wore Israel on his chest, the twelve tribes. He is the special man who stepped out of the heavenlies. Amen. He's the special man Amen. who went into the place no man could go, and he did it for you. Amen. He took your sin, and he didn't put Praise him on a goat. He Amen. put him on his own head. He took your sin, and he didn't wash him away for a year. He took it forever. Amen. Amen. And he asked one thing of us. One, go forth and sin no more. He asked that of us. He's not willing to condemn you, but He is willing to compel you to live for Him. And His righteousness will never be credited and should never be credited to someone who will not obey Him. I don't care what these preachers say. No man will be called righteous before God if he is unrighteous in this life. 
Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not enter the kingdom, Paul said. It's not a small thing. This was paint. But I can't get it off my head. Can't get it off his head easily. Our hands are stained with his blood, friends. That's what that meal is. We could just say, well, that's a heavy message and move on. But that's not really the end of the message, is it? The message is that when you leave, just like Israel, it's the first month of your year. When you leave, all is right with your neighbor. All is right with your family member. You carry not one more sin on you. You are free to meet with God. What is that word? So when we say search your heart, when we say examine your life, what we're saying is don't treat this lightly. And when you leave this place, you talk about a party. When I was a kid, Prince sang a song, we're going to party like 1999. If he had understood what I know, if he had understood there is no party, no party, like the people of God that understand freedom from sin. The problem is, is that we have not been free from sin. We've just been proclaiming. You get free from sin and you will feel as liberated as the day is long. Amen. How do you do it? You let your sin be put on Him. Not Bubba, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You let your sin be put on Him and you feel the cost of that so that you don't do it like that. What is grace? Grace is that you're not dead right now. Grace is that you are not crucified right now. What is the price of grace? Your obedience. Amen. Hallelujah. Your obedience. He purchased the obedience of the nations with his own blood. You either will or will not be in that number. We're going to worship. We're going to worship because in Revelation 5 they worshiped him. I want you to hear this. The Azazel. While you turn to Revelation 5, know that the book of Hebrews says, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. How do you worship with a God like that? Somebody who took your sin, your nasty blood upon himself. How do you worship with a God like that? Someone who did it once? For all, not a sacrifice that needed to be repeated again and again, but once for all time. Listen to how they reverenced him in the kingdom that is there now. It says in Revelation 5 verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took in, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he who sat on the throne, I'm sorry, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Amen. Listen to this song, saints. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. They will reign the earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. And ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth Amen. and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Come on now, they said to Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb to praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Give the Lamb Amen. His due. Give Him His honor. Give Him His praise. He purchased it with His very own blood for you. Give Him His due this night. Stand on your feet, church.
communion elements any way that you want. As you come down, we will grab them, we'll take them all together. I want to continue to worship. And in all of the theatrics, I don't want you to miss something. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How can we say such a thing? Because he can envision a day when God's dwelling is with men, and men dwell with God. It was a joy to him to endure those things to bring you close to the Lord. Don't let something like sin hold you back. Until the worm is only there to eat your crops, only there to burn your head, only there to burn your life. The Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil. He's put his hand upon God and upon you, and he's made peace. He is the great high priest. Don't think you'll escape if you ignore such a salvation. You will not. But if you desire it, his own arm has worked salvation. He did what we cannot do. Feel free to take your we will take them together as a church, but you have to come and get
shows us. And by the power of your spirit, Lord God, we will put to death the misdeeds of our body. We promise as we consume this bread that it's your flesh to be consumed by the, the word, to be crucified to the world. That's your cry, church. If that's your salvation cry, then you can take this bread and eat it in remembrance. Lord, you held a cup. You held a cup that in your culture is a man's lot in life. You said, in this cup is my blood for the redemption of sins. Lord, we praise you for choosing the Father's will. We praise you for saying, your will be done. Lord, you are stronger than we are. Lord God, you are precious to us. You are worthy. Lord, we take this cup in a pledge, a marriage-like eternal pledge, that we will stand with you. Even if it pours out our blood, we will stand with you. Lord, we thank you for purchasing us. We thank you for purchasing us. If this is all the grace there ever was, it would be more than enough to fill every problem, everywhere, every time. But we don't take it lightly. When we drink of this cup, we know that it is it's your sacrificial work. But we pledge to follow you. That is your heart's cry. And I tell you, don't you do it lightly. He's my friend. That is your heart's cry. In Judaism, to drink a cup with someone was to be engaged in a promise. A husband and wife shared a cup of wine to seal their wedding vows. If this is your promise, Lord, if you will help me, I will... I'll die with you. If that is your promise, that's what salvation looks like. And we can drink this cup together. Heavenly Father, Yahweh Yireh. On Abraham's mountain in the region of Moriah, you did provide. You provided the ram caught in the thicket by his great crown. You were the hand of the Father with the knife above the Son. Lord, we praise you for doing what we were not capable of doing. We praise you for defeating flesh, dying to this world, casting down the enemy that was too powerful for us.
and then inviting us into the kingdom. There is no God like you. There is no God like you. <clears throat> Lord, may your will fill the highest heavens. May it fill the lowest recesses of the earth. May every man, woman, and child say, Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. Amen. Lord, we will celebrate your resurrection Sunday. But this day we think of what preceded it. And we say a profound, heartfelt, we are grateful, thank you. Lord, we will show you by our lives that we don't take this lightly. Lord, we will live for you every moment of every day. We will live like this was our last moment and we want to spend our lives well in your service. Mighty God, this is our pledge. It is our pledge that you will have the obedience that your blood promised. It purchased. You will have it. Come on, church, say you will have it. You will have it. Let us worship Him. Let us worship Him. We'll close our service in worship. Let us worship Him. The heavens worship Him. The angels worship Him. The elders worship Him. They worship Him because He is worthy. We can worship Him not just in our song, but with our lives. Our spiritual act of worship is to be submitted to Him. Our spiritual act of worship is to be conformed to Him and no other. To be washed by His Word. Let us start now in song. It's your Change my life, Jesus. You. 